Hello, everyone. So welcome back to Multifamily Live. A few weeks ago, we had an amazing conference, and I wanted to show you and share with you one of the presentations that was done by my amazing husband, Jason Yarusi. He dives deep into underwriting. This episode is not to be missed. So dive in with Jason and have an amazing day. Aloha. Welcome to Multifamily Live. I'm Kimi Yarusi. And I'm Jason Yarusi. Our mission is to help you unlock your full potential as a multifamily real estate investor. So you can do more deals, bigger deals, with less stress, keep more profit, and free up your time. Multifamily doesn't have to be a mystery. It's time to go live. All right, hey everyone. We are back. We are ready to get into underwriting. Uh, we have a ton of action. We're going to pump in here into day one of underwriting, and tomorrow we're going to be doing a real deal analysis. Before we get started, if uh, you have your box at home, you should have gotten a packet of cards. Now, you can say a lot of things. You can say, I'm not good at underwriting. This is one of my weaknesses. This is not where my core strength is. Regardless, if this is your core competency, if this is going to be the hat you wear, or this is going to be a team member, you need to understand. Yes, thank you so much for showing up your cards right, right now. You need to understand these terms, understand why things are happening, why the numbers are fleshing out as it is. So as you have that team member there, you can help them assess the deal, help them understand better the deal, look to build opportunities in there. So you're going to find in here, as we get into these cards, they're so important, right? Because there's so many different pieces that can go into here. And as you're now communicating, it's going to change. If you're in the single family flipping or wholesaling world, you're going to have a different talk track when you start talking with your brokers. There's going to be different terms you're going to be using, different resources you're going to be using. So go through these cards, take note, understand the terms, understand why things are here. And tomorrow we're going to look at these and we're going to pick out and we're going to see how changing some of these terms, how this can impact your deal, how it can maybe make it better or potentially make it much worse. So take a look at these cards. It's going to be a complete valuable resource that Peely and team put together for you. All right, so here are some of the uh, major components that we need to consistently uh, talk about, knowing your terms. Cap rate, we touched about a little bit earlier. We talked about sensitivity on cap rates uh, on some of the VIP earlier on. Cash on cash return. Loan to value versus loan to cost, the type of loans that we may be able to go out there. Debt service coverage ratio, going to be very important for banks, right? They're going to be looking at making sure the deal itself can sustain the loan. Internal rate of return, comparing present values for future values. There's going to be an important metric, uh, not only for your investors, but for you to understand how your deal can pencil out. What could happen if you exit your deal early? What could happen if you do a cash-out refinance in year two when you didn't have that pro forma? And important, net operating income. This is your income minus your expenses gives you your net operating income. This is going to be the driver for you to understand the bandwidth of your deal. All right, so let's get into it. We talked earlier about defining our criteria, right? So when we're underwriting, we're looking for Properties that fit our criteria, class B and class C apartment buildings, 50 to 150 units, south and southwest U.S. regions. Now, in there, you guys have taken your markets. You've gotten more specific. You've gotten your sub-markets, right? So we're talking the areas, the region we want to be into. Property conditions, class A properties, class C properties, class B areas, class D areas. Competition. What are the sales? What are those rental comparisons that are available out there? What can our property become? 
What can we do with our property? Potentially, what can we do to sell our property into the future? And selecting a business plan that will create the most value. My business plan might not be yours. My business plan is we look for opportunities that have cash flow, that have reserves, and have long-term debt on them. So we can go in there, improve the property, and have bandwidth. We can provide cash flow, provide tax advantages, depreciation for years, and then exit, exit seven, year seven, year 10. Some of you may want to get into a building and only hold it for a year, two years, three years. Be a different business plan. All can be correct, but you have to identify what will be my business plan. And this may be your overall business plan, or this might dictate deal to deal. Some opportunities might be great for a short-term hold. Some might be perfect for a legacy play. You're going to allow that to filter through your underwriting. And lastly, adding value through improved management. We're going to talk about asset management versus property management, the differences. But you're going to add value through your management of the asset. And this is where you're going to find ways that you can win with multifamily. All right, so let's dive in. Talked a bit about asset class versus neighborhood class. Very important. On the left, you're going to see uh, maybe a B-plus or A property here. Uh, Newer construction has some amenities. On the right, you're going to see maybe a a B-minus or a C asset here. Uh, if very, very limited on the amenities, you know, parking lot, brick construction, probably a 1970s build, late 1960s build, right? So two different property classes. Is there a right answer? No. There's your answer. It's you understanding what's the class you want to be with. Why is this important? Because when you focus on these two different asset classes, you're going to have different management partners that potentially might manage each class and might not manage both at the same time. You're going to have different expenses, For the A-class property, it might be separately metered where the tenants pay all the utilities. The property on the right, that may be a master metered property where the ownership pays all the utilities. So understanding the bandwidth between these two deals, how they difference, how this varies, that's going to filter into your underwriting, allow you to identify what's going to be best for me and my deals. On the right, potentially maybe you could bill back tenants for utilities. Or maybe you can't. That's going to show different income drivers. On the left, maybe you're going to be able to put on different income drivers on an A-class property. Maybe you can go in there and put in a dog park. Or you can offer trash valet where someone comes and picks up the garbage and the tenants will pay you a fee for this. You'll be able to do different amenity packages that won't be available to the property on the right. This is how you'll win in underwriting. Understanding your terms and understanding where you can build value into your properties. So, What do we look for in the properties that we're going to underwrite? We're looking for motivated sellers. We're looking for repairs that need to be done. Just like you see in the single family world, it could be just unkept properties, uh, poor maintenance on the landscaping, the parking lots uh, have not been touched, the roofs are in distress, you're seeing a a bunch of units uh, that now have AC in the windows because the ownership doesn't want to go and fix up the HVAC. These are all value add. I like to look at the sign. The sign of the building. If the sign of the building is decrepit, how do you think the rest of the building is going to be? If the showpiece for them is, is, at a, is at a deficit, how do you think the rest of the building is going to be? We're going to look for below market rents that can be raised. We're going to look for other income we can add. You can win in so many different ways if you understand that this is a business. Just like if you were to buy a grocery store or an amusement park or a shipping supply company, You're looking at ways to optimize your business. 
And the way you win with underwriting is understanding what are the levers you can pull to optimize your building. This can be on the expense side. This can be on the income side. You could add in uh, pet fees. You could bill back utilities. You could find ways to utility savings. All of these can be built into your underwriting so you can win. You can stand out from other people that are only looking at this building and saying, oh, I'm just going to raise rent. That's all I'm going to do so I can only pay this price. You may know because you've done your research in that market that you can go in there and you can add amenities, right? And you can drive this to a whole different tenant base and drive this to additional rent, be able to build back utilities because you've built your team right. You've built your management partners right. And you will go in there and win because you've done the work. We look for high vacancy relative to the neighborhood, relative to the submarket. Like what I've spoke about before, if the area is high in vacancy, you're not going to be uh, the, the, the person to ride into town and save your building. You're going to be deterred to what the area is warranted. However, if your property is high in vacancy and the area itself is low in vacancy, that's an area where you can improve. You can capture back on proper operations. And high expenses, that can be reduced through proper management. Many times, owners get, um, they get lazy. And you would think, oh, that might be just uh, you know, an old owner or it might be um, you know, someone who's tired. This happens on REITs too, right? REITs are there just to not optimize the property sometimes. They're there just to actually get property so they can park capital. So they're not looking to put, put this property into the best efficient manner. So there is a, always opportunities out there. So don't choose the opportunity thinking what you know the result is. Know there's opportunities, whether it's big or small properties, but you have to understand how this can fit with the rest of the market. So poorly manages properties. Who manages the property? Is it the owner? That's perfect. Uh, We brought a 48 unit in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. The property had the owner who was the, the maintenance man, the guy who collected the cash, the guy who did all the leases, the guy who did everything, right? We got to go see units with the owner. He had about 75 keys on him. He couldn't find the key to the unit. There was some guy coming up, handing him a bag uh, of cash, and he's gave him half the cash for the rent. His phone was ringing like crazy, and he co- didn't have time to pick it up. He had three units that were rent ready, minus they have to have uh, carpet put down. I said, when do you think that would happen? He said, I'll probably get to in a month. That's money right there. But he was tired. He was overwhelmed. He said, oh, I can't wait to be done with this thing. But he was too busy to even look for someone to sell it to until we came along. So there's opportunities everywhere around you. So what do we have to do with that property? One, pick up the phone. Two, create a website. Allow people to know we exist. Three, turn the units in a timely manner. So understanding all the different levers you can do in underwriting. That's why if, if underwriting is not going to be your core competency, not going to be the role you fill, you still have to understand what is happening when you add in certain drivers to this property? It's going to establish you to stand out from the rest of the pool who's not diving deep into these projects. Does the ownership pay all their utilities or have a rub systems in place? Is there a massive amount of repairs that maybe they're not capitalized for? You may ask sometimes, why would an owner sell? Well, maybe they have gotten the property to an extent of where they could be with classic repairs. And all of a sudden, the market around them has taken off, but they don't have the money to do these upgraded repairs. But maybe it'll make a nice time for them to sell, and they find you, who now understands what the market could warrant by doing these upgrades. And you are capitalized correctly. It's a perfect pair. 
Do they have a website? Is there a market for this property? Can you even find this property? Our first property, the 94 unit, it was uh, just a great area. I, I, I love this property. I sold this property, but I still love this property. Is that six vacant units in a market that was 2% vacancy. They were all ready to rent. We went into the leasing office. The lady, I think her name <coughs> was, um, was Deborah. I forget what it was. She was watching Dog the Bounty Hunter, and she was so um, ingrained in Dog the Bounty Hunter that she wasn't leasing these units because she wasn't picking up the phone because she was so busy with the TV, right? Well, you didn't even have to do any of these things. In the two and a half years we owned this building, not once did we have to market in any way except for allow people to walk up to, to the leasing office and say, I want to live here. We were 100% occupied, kept, kept increasing rent, 100% occupied because we were just saying, okay, cool, come, on, get, come on in, filling out applications and getting them leased. Sometimes buildings don't function right because the systems behind, behind in the operation are failing the operation. So if you can learn how your building should operate, you can find the delta of where the building is and where the building can be. Do they have even any systems in place? You'll find a lot of owners, they may not even have leases or tenants have lived there forever or they've allowed them to go month to month or they don't do application processes or they allow people to pay late rent and they don't charge late fees or there's no eviction process. These are all ways that you can win as you go in there and improve your business. Remember, I'm buying not houses. I'm not buying things. I'm buying businesses. I'm here to improve businesses. So you could take this no matter what you're buying, right? You're buying a business. You're buying something that you are going to improve. So you're going to find the ways to improve them. It might be with the right employees. It might be with the right upgrades. It might be with the tinkering of all these pictures in between. When we look at this real deal tomorrow, we're going to look at a cold. We're going to get a rent roll, and we're going to get a trailing 12 months of financials. And we're going to find where the deltas are of what this property is doing and do the detective work of these questions. That's why this is so fun. Underwriting is so fun because you can dive into this, understand, oh, these are the gaps. These are the things that are missing. This is what I could do here to make this a better community to live, to make this a better place. And many times the cool thing with what we do with our underwriting and our systems is that we're able to put in things that don't affect the tenants. So I'm going in there and I'm able to save on my utility bill that doesn't hurt the tenants at all, but saves me money. So it's a win-win, right? The tenants get to stay. They don't have to pay more for your utilities. And now we can win, right? Because we can find that little delta in there. Underwriting is a huge way that you can find the value. It's not all rent. I find that the, the max amount of what I need to do is in my expenses. Because you can't, you can't, get your expenses past a certain point. You're either going to manage it right or you're going to be a slumlord or somewhere in the middle. But you're not going to go in there and do something magical and change up your expenses. So understand where that's at, where that should be. I look for a number called my per unit expense per year. I want to know what that number is. In uh, Louisville, Kentucky, depending on if the tenants pay utilities or the owner pays utilities, it's somewhere between $3,800 a unit to $4,200 a unit per year. So now if I have a 100-unit building, I know my expenses are going to be on a 4,200-unit-per-year building about $420,000 per year. That's going to drive my rent to see if this building works, right? Because I can see, well, can I do these improvements? If I do these added incomes, if I do these added uh, areas where I can drive income, is that going to afford this building to sustain where I can get enough value on the bottom line to one, pay my debt, but two, create a great return for my investors. 
So understanding your expenses, there's nothing more important to that. How do you do that? You start diving into these line items to understand where they should be in this market. What should your admin be? What should your payroll cost on 50 units or 100 units? What, what's my new taxes going to be assessed at? What's the going rate for my insurances? What is uh, my per unit expense for repairs and maintenance? How much does it cost to turn a unit? Sounds tough on the outside, but when you start breaking this down, it becomes real and allows you to be quicker to your answer of does this deal work? And then you'll be quicker to make an offer. So the work is going to be tough on the outset, but once you do it, you can get quick to understand what it should be and you'll be a ninja to go in there and find the value into your building. So here's some deal breakers for us. May not be for you, right? Again, my deal, the type of deals I look for, might not be the type of deals you look for. But we don't look for structural problems, environmental problems, high vacancy rates, and this is historical, right? So we, we, uh, trending versus forecasted, right? We don't want to be in a market that's been potentially always high on vacancy because we can't correct that. Overbuilding and oversaturation of supply. Now, here's where this is important. You're focused on the submarkets. That's why you're going to win. The market versus the submarket are different. If there's a ton of inventory coming on in Louisville, Kentucky, and there's no inventory coming on in our submarket, that's okay. We want to see what's in building process, what's in permitting for the next three years. That first 94 unit, there was one new deal potentially in production in the next three years in our submarket. Yet the vacancy was at 2%, right? So it was dire need of housing, but they had no, nothing being built in the next three years. Perfect opportunity. But when you start seeing cranes in the air and you start seeing all these other things happening, well, the market get, might get oversaturated. And what that will do, that will create a trickle-down effect into your building. So if you're buying B-class assets, well, maybe the A overbuilds, right? Too much inventory. Now they don't have enough people to fill those units. So now they have to start making offers that are going to now offer uh, packages. So I'll give you three months free. We'll give you, you know, free pool access. What that will do is that will start driving down into your B asset, because the B asset now will be affected because some of those tenants will potentially be able to get into that A property based on the discounts and the concessions. So understanding the inventory built around you and where's that breaking point. We live in Murfreesboro, Tennessee now. Fantastic market. Has way too much need for housing and there's a moratorium on multifamily. Wow, that's fantastic. They need to build multifamily. It's it's like they, they need it. Well, so you ask, why aren't they? Because the sewer infrastructure is not in a place where they can have more product come online. So they, they don't have the infrastructure to allow more building at this time if it's not zoned for this, but they need housing so bad. So multifamily is a fantastic play there, right? Because it's at a deficit. People need somewhere to live and they don't have the housing, right? You can put up single family homes, but you can't keep up. And there's a lot of markets like that where the saturation level is not even close, right? Even if they built 300 uh, you know, new units this year, they need 500. Or they built 500 next year and they need 700. The average need right now for multifamily units across the U.S. is something like uh, they need to build like uh, 4,000 a year, and we're building like 2,000. Now, that math is wrong, but look out there. The deficit of where we need housing is completely on point, but you have to look at your market and see how your market is performing based on the units coming online. Jump back here. I jumped one sec. Lastly, amenities uh, nearby. We talked a bit before about food deserts. We want to understand where our properties sit 
in terms of what's around us, what's the supply around us, not only in grocery stores, but in transportations, in supermarkets, in jobs. We want to know where these drivers exist because that's going to allow us, when we're underwriting, to understand how we are going to filter, how we are going to fit in with our available sales comps and rent comps. Uh, we were looking at property last night. The property um, is a property, but it's, it's offset. Uh, it's an older property, but it's offset by a good comp. And we're trying to understand if this good comp is just an anomaly or it fits in the package, right? So we're, we're digging back into this market right now to understand why is this comp getting such aggressive rent bumps? Why? Because the story's not adding up. So we want to make sure, are we on the property line to know where we are in that market? Are we on that property line where we're, we're potentially in a different sub market, a different point? Because something's changing that story. So you're underwriting, understanding your comps and where they fit in, massively important to make sure that it's apples for apples. When you're looking at your units, a two-bedroom that's 1,000 units that's renting for $800 a, a unit a month is not comparable to a two-bedroom that's 700 square feet, 300 square feet different. If they have an, an optimized layout, it might uh, be a delta in the effect. If the two-bedroom unit and two-bedroom unit are both the same square feet, but one has a ton of amenities in the package, that's not going to be the same comp. So you understand how your comps align. So when you're doing your analysis, you know exactly how you're getting an apples for apples comparison. So you can say, this is what we can do for our property. So some of the comp data we're looking for, for rent comps, sales comps, and new construction comps. We're looking at asking rent. We want to look at vacancy level, unit mixes of our competition. This is important. And you want to know how your market really can hold up. Many times, people will uh, trend away from one-bedrooms. I love one-bedrooms in Louisville. They do very well there. I don't like three-bedrooms. I find three-bedrooms in that market are, are, are harder to fill up. So I like a mix that's about two-thirds, one-third of two-bedrooms and one-bedrooms. That's a perfect mix for me. I wouldn't even care to have three bedrooms. I find that they just are, are harder for me to find someone who's going to get into that and will stay for a while. So knowing your market, understanding what works, what's the unit mix, what's the breakout that, that actually fits there, that's going to help you drive. Because when we look at vacancy rates, the same thing might occur. The vacancy rate that you see on the one-bedroom versus the two-bedroom versus the three-bedroom. You may say there's a 5% in this market on uh, vacancy, but that 5% is on, is on your one-bedrooms and your two-bedrooms, and actually three-bedrooms is a 12% vacancy. So understanding how your vacancy filters in to your unit mix. So you can make sure that you're buying a property and if it's heavy on three bedrooms, that you're not assuming that you're going to have a 5% vacancy level. And it might trend higher to 12%. Effective rent per square foot for different unit types. You can look at your properties and how they man up. If your two bedroom that's 1,000 square feet is renting at 81 cents per square foot per month, Right? And the comps are all at a dollar a square foot. Same type of properties. You will first want to find out, is this opportunity? Is there some reason why my building is not renting at that square foot uh, per square foot price point? If there's not, that's the value. You can add in that 19 cents per square foot to each of your properties. Asset classes. Is my comp in a, a comp with the property next spot nearby? Or is that property in A? And that's why the brokers tell me you could get, you know, potentially saying that we could get $300 rent bumps, but it's not a comparable property. 
the brokers, they're going to give you a story. They're going to give you the feedback. They're trying. They're trying to do their best thing for the seller. They're also trying to get you to buy a property. But they're going to look for the, the shiny object of what potentially could be out there. But you have to do the due diligence on your comp level. We had a property in Alabama about a, a month ago. The comp level was from uh, all over the state. Gave us the entire state of Alabama. And I'm sure people know Alabama here. It's, it's not the smallest state. So if you have a comp that's four hours away, it's not a comp. I like to keep our comps within two miles if possible. Because we all can know that you've been somewhere and two miles away is a whole different world. Same thing happens with your comps. So you want to make sure your comps are in your area. They have a distance to the property. We're also looking at the distance to our subject property as we talked about on our sales comps on the same ends. If a sales comp sold on the West End or downtown in Louisville, Kentucky, it's not going to be a comp for our property in the South Central submarket or the South Central, uh, South submarket. Different asset class, different consensus, different metrics, different household income. One point that I'd love to put back into the, the market data we talked about earlier, household income. You can go on the Census Bureau and find out the household income in your zip codes. Our key is to be in areas that have a $30,000, really $40,000 to $60,000 household income, preferably $40,000 to $90,000 is the sweet spot. That's where our driver is for workforce housing. We find anywhere above that, they're probably not going to be, you know, maybe you're going to be in the A class, you're going to go out and buy a home. Anywhere below that, um, it just, it's tough. Collections are tough. There's a lot of things if they're, you know, $20,000, $30,000 household income. So for us, we're looking at our property types, where we are in the submarket, and the household income in that area. Very important for that point. And management. When we're analyzing properties, we spoke about a property earlier today with the team, and the reason that we didn't like the property is because there's no property management companies there. And I don't live there. I'm not managing the property. You're not going to be managing the property. You're going to find a team and set that team up to manage that property for you. But if there's no good partners to be had, well, that's not going to be a great property for you. So as you're underwriting it, it, does it have the team? Does it check all the boxes? Where can you find value? And the value is only going to be driven by the team that can implement your plan. Because if it's all here and it can't be put in the process, doesn't matter how good the deal can pencil, it has to be put to work. Underwriting the deal. All right, let's get into it. Here's what you need to know. Know your submarkets and the fundamentals of your neighborhood. Why is the seller selling? Always ask this question. We think that brokers are sometimes this mythical beast that we can't speak to. Ask them the question. Why are they selling? Maybe it's the end of their whole period. Maybe there's a partnership dispute. Maybe they haven't paid out returns to some of their investors and their investors just want their money back. Maybe they're not capitalized correctly. Something happened. That was a, uh, a one-time event, you know, and they, they didn't have enough money. They don't have enough money to, to do the package. Or maybe they jumped in uh, to a new space. I know a property currently where a, a group out of California, a uh, husband and wife, 1031s into a property in the middle of America, never even been there. And unfortunately, they, they got into a bad property, and now they're upside down in the property. And now they're looking for someone to take on their problem. Because they, had, they, they trusted a broker who led them into a deal that was not a good deal. And now they're into a deal because they didn't do the research into the market. They didn't do the research into the deal. They didn't have the team in place to carry forward the deal like you guys will, like you will put in place. 
So understanding the steps of what it takes for you to understand what it is, why that seller is selling, so you can make the best decision on how you can go in there and put in the best approach. Tenant base. This is one of the most important things for underwriting is understanding who's there now. Because maybe your plan can work, but understanding what this will do to your existing tenant base. If you can increase rents $300, can this tenant base sustain $300 rent bumps? Or are you going to have to now turn over the entire building and have everyone move out and pull in a whole new tenant base? How quickly could this plan be implemented? We think things will happen quickly, but it's like to said, a uh, multifamily building is like turning around a cruise ship. It doesn't happen quickly. You have a lot of small levers you're putting in place. They can have a massive impact, but you yourself have to understand the time it's going to take for this to happen. If it's now you're able to maybe just raise the, the rents 50 to 100 hours, maybe you can keep some of those tenants in, or maybe you could hedge an occupancy on, on just filling the, the vacancy units at that new rent part and start slowly bumping up the existing tenant bases. Understanding what's there now allows you to identify what your plan can and will be. So we're going to look at the current income and the current in- expenses and the current net operating income. We had a property sent to us the other day, and the, uh, the owner said, you know, you can't go off the financials. You got to just imagine what it can be. Well, how can I do that? What, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to just buy in some magical profits of what could be a property? No, you use what's there now. That tells you the story. That tells you the story of how that property has been operating so you can build upon it. You offer on the existing financials. You don't offer on the potential of what's out there. Because ultimately, you're paying someone for something they didn't do. You're going to buy properties based on what it is so you can do that value. Because if you, base, if you buy in forecasted value, well, you're basically paying for something for someone who failed at that business plan or failed at their approach to the property. Important here. We talked before about expenses. Expenses are that thing that you have to understand because it's most important because you are going to have a level of expenses that's going to cost for you to operate this property. Here's two things that people constantly overlook. Taxes and insurance. Non-controllable expenses. We assume that if we buy a property, the taxes are just going to be the same thing. Some of these markets can be very hefty. Some of you in Texas know you can have multifamily tax uh, bills, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But if you can't identify how your property taxes are going to be assessed, you're going to be a delta because that's going to hit your cash flow. Because if you buy a building, assuming the taxes will say at 25000 and in year two, they go up to 60000 what is that going to do to your bottom line? Having the conversations, calling the county, Understanding, calling the townships, how are my taxes assessed? So you understand when they're assessed, how frequent they're assessed, what are they assessed on? Is it the actual, uh, do they just look at the value of of land and cost of uh, structure, or is it based on the purchase price? And insurance. Insurance has been just a, it's a very, very, very tight market now with insurance. We were getting insurance at $300 a unit a few years ago, $275 at, at a time. Now we're getting 500 a unit, 475. You know, they're blaming on all you guys in Texas for having a freeze there. They're saying that's why all the, the, the income or all the tax or the insurance is going up. But ultimately, the market's been driving that way for a while. Now, it will open up. It will go back lower. But right now, if you're, if you're not paying attention to your increase in insurance, 
That could be a $10,000, $20,000 delta to your bottom line, which depending on the size of your property could really, really, really hit your return metrics. All right, so we have this underwriting guide here that we've provided to all of you. We're going to dive in here tomorrow to understand what it is, how you can use this. So this will be something that you can download here. But this is what you need to understand each and every time you underwrite a deal. The purchase price or price guidance. Now, you're going to get a lot of offerings from brokers, and they're going to say it's driven by the market. That's great. Always ask the question, is there price guidance? Where's the, return, uh, the price metric going to be? 99% of the time, they're going to give you some price guidance. Right? They're going to give you some idea of where the price shall and will be. And then now it's going to be you to understand, can you fit to that price level? We talked before is that you are going to buy on current. You are going to buy on actual revenue and expenses. So you're going to get the financials that are available. And when you're buying some of these buildings, it might be pretty, pretty difficult or it might be pretty poor. Our uh, 48 unit, I think you remember our owner who had uh, 75 keys in his pocket, phone ringing all the time, bag of cash getting handed to him. How great do you think his financials were? Non-existent. Non-existent. He had a rent roll, and the rent roll tells you each tenant that lives there, each unit they live in, their name, how much they pay, how much was their deposit, uh, when they moved in, when their lease expired. And, and, if they, and so at that point, they would go to month to month. That's what a typical rent roll will tell you. This owner, we got a piece of paper with a building number and a letter and, a, and the amount of rent. That's it. That's all he had. No leases, nothing. Didn't even have the people's names on the, on the, on the rent roll. He had the unit number or the unit letter and an amount. No idea how long they've been there. No, long, no idea if they were current. So we had to build back and work with that owner to figure out what was the financials there. But doing that work, and instead of just disregarding that and saying, oh, forget this, that might be too tough to do, because we knew what the market could do, because we understood, because we had done the work, understood what the rent can be in that market, what the comps can be in that market, what the expenses could be. We could build back our pro forma to understand where this property is and where this property could be. So we got that deal at a stellar deal. A stellar deal because we were willing to do the work because we knew what the underwriting can and should be on that property regardless of where the financials could be. And even more amazingly, we got agency financing on that one where Fannie or Freddie debt, I believe it was Fannie uh, debt on there, which typically requires a mass amount of financials, where we're able to get the, the ownership to reconstruct through some you know, hand-holding with them, reconstruct his financials so we can have financial to present to the lender. And we got agency debt on that property. I think 80% loan to value. Fantastic deal. Still have that one today. But it took work to understand where we could be, right? What that deal could be because we had done the work to put our partners in place the management company could tell us what it's going to take to operate this. We had done our comp work to know where this could rent, where our rent comps could be. We had known what sales were in the past and what a steal of a deal we were getting because we were willing to work through the headache that this owner had there, solve the problems not only for the owner, but find the value from where we could be. So you want to get your current revenue and expenses. And when you're looking at 
your current revenue expenses, we want to see a year. Why the year is important is because the year is going to show you how it's trended over the course of a year in two ways. Lots of uh, cities you live in, we have warm climates and colder climates in the same year. We're going to have different ways that the property is going to operate in different seasons. In the winter, might be tougher to rent. Our utilities might be higher. We might have some different expenses like, uh, you know, um, uh, shoveling snow. In the summer, maybe the expenses uh, are a little bit lower and our rent's really easy. And we're, we're constantly more occupied in the summer. But if you were just to get the financials for that snapshot of one month or three months and you were in the winter, you might perform your property uh, much more in a negative uh, spotlight. And if you're in the summer, you might add value to that property. It doesn't exist because it doesn't trend for that whole year. Also, looking at your last 12 months, how has vacancy trended? Property last night, uh, 12 months, it goes that it was uh, like 30% vacant last March. Now it's down to five. What's that story? Why has that happened? What have they done to improve this? Their rents are trending that are about 100 to $200 more uh, per unit than their comps. Or are they offering concessions? Is there something we're missing? So why is this trending differently? Because we've seen the narrative of what this property has done over the course of a year. But we have to buy this in the last 12 months. If we look at this holistically just from the last month or the last three months, well, this property will look stellar. It would look, it would look fantastic. But when you look at the landscape of the last 12 months, it's, there's chaos. There's chaos among the financials. What's the story? What can we discover? Because this leads us to our questions. And as we spoke about mindset earlier, better questions get you better answers. And that's what underwriting is. Underwriting is understanding what questions I need to ask, under question, what questions I need to focus on so I can discover better answers, so I can discover better ways for me to win with this property. Current net operating income. This is your bottom line. Based on cap rate here, net operating income divided by the purchase price is going to give you your cap rate. What you are going to look for is how can you take that net operating income and increase it? How can you increase that bottom line? And it's going to be a delta of taking your income and your expenses. How can you improve your income? How can you reduce your expenses? Both or one or the other. Most patterns you're going to find that it's one or the other before they both can go congruently. You may be able to go and push your income up, but that may push your marketing budget up. You may have to add on more resources to make this a better performing property so your expenses might go up at the same time. But hopefully, you're exceeding with your income growth over your expense growth. Or the other way, you may hedge on where your income is now and find your improvements and build back and try and cut down on where your, uh, your expenses are now. That first 94 unit, luckily we had both sides. We had, uh, they had three maintenance guys for this property when they only needed one. They were all just sitting around all the time. So for that, we got down to one maintenance person. We were able to run this property efficiently with one maintenance person. Cut down two people's payroll right there. We were able to now cut down our water bill by 30% because they weren't taking care of the utilities, all the leaks. They just weren't taking care of things. So we were able to slowly down our expenses which brought up our bottom line. And then we were able to go in there and start doing marketing packages to improving our income on both sides. But finding a delta where you can do both at the same time can be tough, but you can, it can be done. Looking at our comparable properties we talked earlier on, 
very important level here, understanding, making sure your comps align. Our income and expense assumptions. This is one of the major points for you to focus on. Like we spoke about a little bit earlier, if there's 5% or 10% growth in the market each year right now on rent, it's probably not going to trend forever. That would price a lot of people out of a unit, right? Price a lot of people out of a home. What's been the historical growth? What's been the historical level of growth? I see a lot of underwriting go wrong because it's been a 5% or 7% rent growth the last two or three years. So they assume that's going to carry through right through your magical property here. And for the next three or five or seven years, you're going to have three, five, seven years of 5%. And it's always historical been too. And your property might only be working because of that growth assumption right there. Other point, your expenses. Things go up. There's inflation. 3%, 2% of growth on your expenses each year. That's going to trend with your income. So to think that your income's only going to grow and not giving clout to your expenses, how that's going to trend as well, you will find that you're building in a cushion there that doesn't exist and you'll find that the hard way is by you own this for year one, year two, year three, that your, your expenses continue to tr- creep up. With COVID, we actually stopped now on our properties. When we're going into new properties, we've been putting 0% rent growth in for the first and sometimes second year. We're assuming we're getting no natural rent growth because of what's happening COVID. We're finding our rent growth into, through our forced appreciation through the value we're adding to the property is gaining on that. But we're assuming we're building or finding no built-in growth assumption in our rent for the first one, two, in some ways, three years. Now, could we? Absolutely. But the deal works without it. And it puts me in a good place. It allows me to sleep comfortably at night. Gives my investors now uh, comfort because they know that we're really being conservative on what could potentially happen because the market has been disrupted with COVID. But what happens if I do? Gravy. I get magical income built into our property because we get back to trending. But at least I can forecast to look at these assumptions to assume that the expenses will continue to grow and the rent will stay steady for the time being. And if my deal can sustain like that, if my deal can survive and perform like that, masterpiece. That's a magical deal. We are going to dive in tomorrow on sensitivity here. One of the important points about sensitivity to your deals is that when we're underwriting, we want to know where is it, where's the break-even point? Where is the point that my vacancy can be, that the amount of expenses I have to pay and my debt service, I'm now into the red where I can't cover my expenses and my debt service. Is it 90% occupied? Is it 80% occupied? Is it 60% occupied? Hopefully, the lower the better, right? That means that you can survive pretty long if this property went to defunct. When COVID first happened, they were talking about, you know, 15, 20%, 30%, 50% vacancies, all these crazy metrics out there, right? So you want to look at your property and say, well, where's that level? What can I survive with? What is it that I can now get to where I can still have it cover, basically cover uh, my, my expenses and my debt service? What is that number? And having reserves, having reserves, what you don't think of will happen. We've had sewer line busts. We've had underground electric uh, utilities busts. We've had to replace a lift station uh, that was uh, newly filled over. All CapEx uh, items that we couldn't forecast. 
having reserves for the day that you need it is most paramount. It gives you the clarity that you'll be able to keep this deal. You won't be undercapitalized. You'll be in a great place to perform when you need to. Looking at your trending renovated rents. We're buying a property right now. Fantastic. What do we need to do to get the renovated rents? Um, go in there and uh, clean the carpet. Fantastic. Well, that's not always going to happen. What is it going to take for you to get the renovated rents? We look for a return where if it's a property that we're going to put in uh, $5,000, we want to see that money back between three and five years. So that rent bump, whether it's $100, $300, hours, $500 rent bump, we want to see that return on capital between three and five years. Really three to four well, we want to see that the money put into that unit is going to create enough value that we can have it built back three to four to five years. The same thing goes for our expenses. We want to see if we go in there and do some utility saving that is going to be recaptured in that three to five year horizon. Solar is a magical thing. Solar is a great thing. Unfortunately, solar usually has a 15 to 20 year repayment opportunity. So it's going to take me 15 to 20 years to get my money back. But for me, most of our deals, like we said before, five to seven years. So it's not a good play for me and my properties, even though it would be great to do because it doesn't offer that value in that three to five year horizon. So looking at how you can maximize your buildings, but making sure the return is worth the cost. That's one of the big points for how you're going to look at what your renovations can do and how they can drive. Area cap rate. We talked a bit before about this, but understanding your area cap rate, how it is now, how it's trended historically, and forecasting where it will be in the future. To assume that your cap rate is going to stay where it is today is going to set you up for a lot of pain in the future. We mentioned a little bit before in the VIP uh, institutional level for a cap rate, they're going to look at where the current cap rate is and add on 10 basis points per year for the length of their hold. So if you're going to hold a property for five years, you're going to add on 50 bips to your exit. So if your current cap rate's a six, not the cap rate you're buying it at, but if your current cap rate's a six, you're going to add on 50 basis points. You're going to exit at a six and a half. That's how we go to underwrite like the institutional players do to put ourselves in a position to delta. Could this market be at a five, five years from now? Absolutely. Built in value. Built in value for us and our investors. But when we look at our deals and we're analyzing our deals, understanding where we're forecasting, we're going to look at our sensitivity charts. We're going to look at our scenario here. If we exit at a 6.5 cap, we win. But what happens if we exit at a 7.5 cap or an 8.5 cap? Does our deal blow up? Do we have to – do our investors lose money? Where does this deal not make sense? Because that lowers our risk threshold of where we are today in the deal, where we are today in this opportunity. I do the same thing with our, our growth assumptions. We talked about a little bit before about growth assumptions. I do an upside, base case, downside. Upside shows me the best case, magical uniform, unicorn scenario. Fantastic. We do get that 5% rent growth per year. Great. Perfect. That's my best case scenario. My base case, I get zero the next two years, and I get uh, you know 2 or 3% for the years following. My worst case I get zero or negative 2% for the next five years. What happens in my worst base and best case scenarios to my deal? You want to understand this so you can see how the deal evolves as these different levers are put into place. 
Next, we're going to look at our available financing terms. This is so important. And it's so easy of just calling up a lot of banks and understanding the terms that are available. Just because uh, you you have a screwdriver when you need a hammer doesn't mean it's going to work, right? Same thing with financing. I know a lot of people will talk to one bank and assume that that's the loan they're going to use when they find the property. You find the property and you've had your talk with banks to know the best fit for your financing terms. So if it's going to be loan to value or loan to cost, or you're going to do a bridge product, or you're going to go for agency or a community bank, whatever's that point is going to be driven by the deal. The deal is going to be the best fit for it. Right now, uh, we have a community bank, uh, we have an agency, uh, and we have another community bank based on the deals in front of us. Because those are the best deals to fit the package. For agency, after COVID, they put in a lot of requirements. They were now creating their buffer. They're creating their safety component here. So they were making property owners who were buying properties put in COVID reserves. They were putting in reserves for our, um, our principal and our interest, sometimes taxes and insurance up to 12 and 18 months. So that grew to our deal. That disturbed our entire metrics for our deal because we had to understand how were we going to bring in all this additional capital and how is, how is it going to be returned? So we had to change up our entire dynamics of our deal structure and then figure out now is agency the best player? Should we talk to some of these other lending partners who weren't so strict on the COVID requirements? However, so if you think about raising a million dollars for a deal and it was going to offer a 15% return, well, if the lender comes back and says, I need you to put in play another $250,000 for reserves, well, now you're raising $1.25 million. And now your 15% return may filter down to a 12% based on that point. It can massively change how your deal plays out, understanding what would be required by the lender. And then you have that other decision. When I get that money back in a year or 18 months, do I just give that back to investors Or do I delay my CapEx plan today and somehow try and push ourselves out that 12 months and just limit our CapEx budget and use that money in the future? Harder it is, I'd I'd like to take the first one because I don't want to be at a point that I don't have the money to do the repairs, even though it's going to lower my returns. But what we were able to do is continue to build our base of banks so we had the right partners that could fit us with the right partners to win for each and every deal. So right now we're doing loan-to-value. We're doing uh, two loan-to-cost, one to loan-to-value. Loan-to-value is when you're getting a loan that's based on the value of the property, right? So your loan amount is a percentage of uh, the, the value of the property. Loan-to-cost is when you're getting a loan amount that's uh, based on a, a, the total cost, total source of uses, total construction cost. So reason we're doing the latter loan-to-cost on two of these properties is because they're, they're underperforming based on where they are today. They have a ton of value, but if we were to get into an agency loan, which um, one is one vacancy and the other is two. So could we go for an agency loan that requires you to have a 90% occupancy rate? Yes, we could. However, they would lock us into a long-term loan, three, a five-year, seven-year, 10-year loan, and my exit would have a penalty. And that penalty would have a prepayment penalty, a high prepayment penalty, or a high yield maintenance fee. So it would be very hard for me to exit. But the, the, the difficulty there is I'd be getting low value based on what the property is performing now, and I'd be stuck into a property. 
So I think if I get 18 months out or I get 24 months out into the deal and I've done magical, I've done the business plan and I'm ready to bring out all the value, I would get crushed on the payment that I had to pay as a fee up front. These loan-to-cost loans that we're working with right now, we're getting a little bit different of a loan structure. However, we're able to exit and get into a new loan. That's what's expected by these deals. And there's no, there's either a 1% payment penalty or zero to exit this deal. That puts us in the best position to be able to go in there, push up value, and not be stuck into a loan where we're severe, severely undervalued. I have a property right now where my loan is $1 million and the, the, the building value is two point five. But because we brought this at the time where we weren't expecting such an increase in value on in the property, that we now are at a point where it would be hard for me to do a refire or a supplemental because the supplemental add-on market right now is so small that it's not worth us adding on that loan. So you can either do a refinance to pull the value out or you can add on that secondary supplemental loan. But with the agency lenders, they did this funny thing. They said, oh, you want to do a supplemental? Oh, you brought this deal before COVID? Oh, great. So let's do that supplemental, but now I'm going to make you put COVID reserves on top of now not only your supplemental, your couple hundred thousand dollar loan, but your whole loan. So now if I want to do this supplemental, now they got me. I would have to do that point and add on all these COVID reserves, right? So you have to look at how your deal is performing now, but understand that might change in the future based on the metrics of the area. We've worked it through. We have a great, a great opportunity to move out of that deal. Fantastic. The buyer's going to win. Everybody's going to win in that deal. But understanding how your loan today will impact your ability to change your performance in the future is clearly important. If your plan is now to exit a deal in two years, perfect. You probably don't want to put on long-term debt where it's hard to get out of. If your plan is to hold this deal for the long-term, well, man, interest rates are at an all-time low. Why put on a, you know, a, a bridge product or something that's going to be, uh, you're going to have to exit out of in, in a year or, or 12 months or 18 months when you know that you want to hold this long-term? That's going to be very important for you when you're sourcing your available financing terms. Next, your hold period, right? We're talking a lot on syndication coming up in a minute here. Hold periods are important, right? Because you're, you're offering security and the security has an entry point and an exit point. Your investors want to know, when is their money coming back? What is your business plan? You're going to hold these deals for two years. You're going to hold these deals for five years. You're going to hold these deals for seven, year, seven years. It's going to be very important for you to understand where your timeline is in this deal and how your deal changes if you change up your performa. You may have a point where you do a seven-year hold, but you end, up not, uh, you end up refinancing in year two and pulling a ton of capital back. Well, you didn't perform that in the beginning, but it's changed up your entire dynamics of the deal in a good way. So your whole period is your set business plan. However, you have to constantly keep your head on the swivel. Times have gotten really aggressive right now. So if you have the opportunity to sell, owners are looking at selling, even if they were looking at long-term because the rates that have now been available to the buyer pool and the lack of uh, deals out there has made a lot of pricing very aggressive. Right? So it's, it's at their best point to put deals out there understanding how you could potentially exit in the market even if it's not your business plan. Next, we're going to look at deal structure. That's coming up in two minutes. We're going to talk on partnerships or syndication. How can you use this potential deal structure? How is that going to change for your underwriting? Are you offering a preferred return? Is that an 8% preferred return or a 6% preferred return? Is there a split between you and the partnerships? Is it 50-50? Is it 65-35? All of these are going to dive into what's important and show how your deal can break out. 
you may be underwriting a deal and try and do a 60-40 split, and it doesn't work. But if you did an 80-20, it's fantastic. Okay? Is it worth you? Is it worth your time? Is it worth your energy to do an 80-20 where you get to 20 to get to the deal? With your first deal? Probably. Absolutely. Right? So understanding how different deal structures can make and break a deal. Lastly, return metrics. Return metrics are massively important because this is what you're doing all this for. What is your average annual return? What is your cash and cash return? What is your your MOIC? What is your multiplier on income invested? What is your internal rate of return on this deal? These are all important factors. Investors want to know, what am I going to get? I'm going to give you money. What am I going to get back? We try and double our investors' money in five to seven years, really five. That's, that's the story. It's easier sometimes because not every investor is going to understand MOIC or, or IRR. They're not going to understand, and you're going to be putting a lot of information over their head. If they want to get into the weeds, I'll get in the weeds. But most of them just want to understand, who am I? Why am I in this random market I don't live in? And what's this deal going to do? How are you going to make it better? And how are you going to be, preserve their capital? Return metrics is how you're going to identify if this is a deal that's in the box for you. Does it check? And is it green? Or is it a red? And it, what can you do on these other levers we talked about to make this perform better so you get more of those metrics in the green? All right, so tomorrow, we're going to dive fully in on underwriting. We're going to talk in depth about each, each of these pieces here so you can understand what it is that when we're analyzing a deal that we're looking at. So before we talked about the T12, this would not be a fantastic T12 because it's just giving me the overall income for the entire year, right? So gross, gross uh, rent potential, uh, you know, 1.234 million. What we can tell is that within the T3 right here, it's gotten a little bit better. Not much, but $1,000 better in the last three months for some subjective reason. Over the last three months, if they trended this out and forecasted this on the right column there, the T3, and this is now put out to a T12 perspective, the vacancy has actually gone down in the last uh, three months compared to what's been historical, of course, the, the cross of the last uh, 12 months. But for some reason, we're still in a point where we're having a lot of bad debt in this property. So we want to start and buy. Probably COVID. Probably COVID is driving that. This is how you can look at the property from a T1, a T3, and a T12. Most lenders are going to look at your income from a T1 or T3 perspective, but they're going to look at the expenses when you're buying on a T12. So you may be able to get a better loan because the, the T1 or T3 income's gone up, but if the expenses uh, in the T1 or T3, they're not going to look at that. They're going to look at this landscape of the last 12 months. So Alessandra put this in here today, so I actually hadn't even looked at this yet, but that's what I would look at right now. How are we forecasting in the T3 versus the T12? What's been the, the various deltas? Uh, for some reason, they've got on more fees in the T3. The last three months, if they forecast this out over 12 months, they've gone up about $6,500 for some reason. So we want to find how, where are they finding value in there? Is that fees, late fees? It means a lot of tenants are paying late for some reason, a good amount of tenants in the last three months. Why is that? What is, what is hurting them? Is this right in the middle of COVID where you're starting to see a lot of tenants pay more? So understanding why these numbers are trending the way they are that's how you can make money. That's how you can identify the deltas. On the bottom line right now, um, it looks like they just mimicked uh, across the board their expenses. So we don't see any delta there. But we get into this right side right here. This is a rent roll. First is where the rent is. Typically on this point, you'll see a lot of rents that will show market rent. This is where the owner 
or a broker is putting in a market rent that they're saying this is what the market could be. I don't even look at that number. I throw that number out because sometimes they don't even pay attention to it. And they might have it at $200 or $2,000 because they've just used in whatever is the placeholder number. I look at where the current rent is. So right now we see 800, 800, 675, 688, 738, 625. What would be important here is that what's our unit breakup? This doesn't tell us. So is the 800, you know, two bedrooms and the 625s or one bedrooms, or are they all two bedrooms and we can get 800 for these other units? I don't know, but that's a question I would find out. The deposits, um, really low. Do I see 550 because the 550 is someone with a, um, with a poor credit score or has had some marks before? I don't know. I'd want to find that out. Is the 200, is that the typical deposit for someone who passes green right through the application process? I'd want to figure that out because this is the building that I'm taking over. This is the building that's going to create my legacy, that's going to help me get to the next level in my career, that's going to help my investors keep their money. There's three things that are important with investors. Preservation of capital, growth of capital, and return of capital. I will say that one more time. There's three things that are important for investors. Preservation of capital, growth of capital, but there's nothing more important than return of capital. So if you think that you should ask the question and you feel silly asking it, you ask it first. Because you're buying something that you're going to have a lot of money put into. You're taking, you're making a big investment. You ask the hard questions. There's no dumb question. The only dumb question would be not to ask the question. Next, we're going to look at these leases right now. <clears throat> Looks like we have one that's right in the middle from 2017. So we're going to ask if that goes on month to month. <clears throat> Is that unit um, something that do they pay a month to month additional fee? The, the one that's the 688 rent, that now too uh, looks like it's now into month to month. Okay, cool. Do, do they pay additional fees for month to month? Is there anything that limits them from staying on month to month? Did we go in there? We want them to pay an additional for being on month to month. And lenders are not going to like that. Why are lenders not going to like that? Because if you have a 20-unit building and they're all in month-to-month, to me, I'm like, that's magical. Because I can go in there and do my business plan right away. I don't have to wait for all these leases to expire and push it up. But for the lender, this is what they see. Oh, man, you got a 20-unit building. Everybody's on month-to-month. You're going to buy it, and I'm going to give you this debt. Day one, everybody's going to move out. And you're not going to have enough money, and the building's going to go defunct. Chance that happen? Not going to happen. But that's what lenders are going to think. That's what they're going to see, and it's going to make you harder to qualify. I've had these a lot. That 48-unit building where I had a napkin with the rent roll on it, of course that guy had no leases. Of course that guy had no rent roll. Of course that guy, everybody was on month to month. So we went in there and had the, the tenants all put on the stopples, and we made an agreement that within the first three months, we'd get everybody on a lease. That passed us. That got us through that next threshold. So there's ways around that when you don't. The last thing I wanted to do was for that owner to go in there and put everybody onto a year-long lease when the, when the units were $150 and $200 under market because that would blow up my business plan. So understanding how the business is, how the operations are, how the financials are going to now affect my business plan, but how the lender is also going to see this, how the lender is going to look at this, how the lender is going to look at these financials because that's going to impact the type of deal, the type of property, the type of debt you can get onto this project. All right, so... That's on this point. I got one more going into this. Do your due diligence. Review the rent roll in T12. Review the current 
vendors, laundry, cable, pest, landscaping, trash. Massively important. Ownerships get lazy. Pest control may go up 3 or 5% just on their, their agreement every year. Just written in their agreement. Every year, your, your bill is going to go up 3 or 5% across the board. Owners maybe had it for five years, been letting Jerry from you know, pest control come in there and prove it, and he hasn't reviewed the contract. Maybe you can cut down $7,000 on your landscaping or your, uh, your pest control or your landscaping bill because that's, the rest of the market is $5,000 lower, $7,000 lower. But because the owner has just been paying this increase because it's easier for him than having to go find out that new part, you can find value. Review your utility bill. There's some states out there where you're able to go out there and source utility fees and source utility rates so you don't have to pay from the local groups. Pennsylvania is one of those. You can go out there and source uh, utilities so you can get the best rates out there. Louisville's not, right? So I'm stuck with those, those groups right there. I have to find other ways to win that I'll talk to you about asset management presentation coming up. Your rehab and CapEx budget and timeline. Remember, you can have the perfect CapEx budget, perfect CapEx plan, but if you assume it's going to happen in six months when it really needs to happen in 18 months, you're going to be sorely, sorely hurt when it takes 18 months for you to get to the results that you thought you could have. Look to find other ways in your underwriting. Rubs, pet fees, rent schedules, move-in fees. Assess the taxes with purchase, please. If there's anything you take away from this presentation, do that. That will save someone in here a lot of headaches, a lot of really uh, pain on the back end. And get your quotes from your bankers and your insurance agents. Don't wait. Don't assume where it's going to be. Get it today so you can be in the best position to win. Next after this, we're going to wrap up. We're going to go into deal structure. We're going to show you how we structure these deals. But here's the valuation of your property right here. Net operating income divided by cap rate equals value. You can do this in any other way. Value divided by cap rate or NOI. If a broker doesn't want to give you the price, but it'll tell you what the market cap or the cap rate is in the market, and it'll tell you the NOI where you can get to the value. Lots of ways. We had some students before, really smart. They saw where the broker, the broker wouldn't give them a price, but it was broken up because it was five different properties. But they knew where the broker was assessing the taxes at, and they knew how to assess the taxes. They back ended, re engineered this to understand what the tax rate was on each property, and that was able to drive what the properties were valued at. So you're able to get to the value of those properties back way by understanding how the value of the, uh, the taxes would be deterred and how the broker was seeing the future taxes. When acquiring an income property, the higher the capital ratio, the better. Great, because that gives you ways that you can go in there and get back more value and then sell at a lower cap rate. Net operating income, operating income minus expenses. All right, so who had some takeaways here right now? Hit me up with those money signs on the back. Let me know that you guys are out here, you're listening. Hope you guys, I know you guys got a lot of value out of this. This is going to go out there and drive value for you, drive value for your future to underwrite. Tomorrow, we're going to put this to work. Tomorrow, we're going to put this into effect so you know how you can put this into a real case scenario. Boom. Exit cap rates. Talked about sensitivity before. You see it right here. My perfect deal, I'm going to buy it at a six cap. 13.99% on the IRR, 2.11 metric on the multiple, investor profit, 850K, gross sales profit, 3.2 million, uh, sales price, 3.2 million. Look what happens if I trend up just one, uh, you know, one full point, 7%. 
Look what happens if I go to 7.25. What happens if I go to 8? Same way, it drives down to 4 and 5. Remember, this is five years out in the future. How could your deal change based on cap rate sensitivity? So don't assume that you know the magical cap rate and don't find yourself putting in a cap rate that it, it's, it's the best case scenario. Look at how your deal would be, how your deal would fluctuate based on different exit cap rates. Here's the important metrics we talked about before. Cash on cash, average annual return, equitable multiple, IRR. We're going to show you how these can fluctuate a lot like we just did here. You see how this changed? 6% cap rate, 2.11 multiplier, 7.25, 1.73. Boom. Here's what it takes for us to get a deal. Sometimes 100 deals gets us into 30 deals of real analyzing into offers, into one acquisition. Sometimes it takes 100 deals, sometimes it takes five. You don't know where it's going to be, but it's going to be doing the work and knowing where you can add that value today to get you to that part of where you want to be. Here's what it looks like from the overall investment here. We've done our analysis. Purchase price, 2.26, 24 units. We're going in at a 4.79 cap rate. We're actually putting this out at a 6.5 on the exit right now. We're buying this because the, the property is severely under market on rents, but the property is in perfect condition. Low capex bu- uh, budget. So we have a ton of ways we can win on this property. When we look at this from the deal, unlevered property IRR. That means if we had no debt on this property, levered property IRR. Right there, 21% on a levered IRR. Even though we're buying a 4.79 cap, pro- project multiple equity, three. Exit cap rate, six and a half right now. The, area, the market cap rate right now is a five and a half. So we have a ton of room here that we can grow. Exit price per unit, 131. There's a comp right now at 143. So even today, this is future forecasting. We have comps today, today, real time, that suffice to show us where that exit could be, even though we're five, seven years into the future. This is how it looks from our investor standpoint. 17.04, 2.21, 9.2%, Right? So it shows the investors how they can look at their deal, why they should invest in this deal, why this makes sense for them. All right, so we've done all that. How are we putting this deal together? Here's our structure of our deal. Here is how we syndicate deals. First, we find alignment. Partnerships shouldn't just happen because you're friends, shouldn't just happen because you need one. I had a talk with one of our students yesterday. He wanted to get a partner. I said, why? He said, I think I should get one. Why? I just might be good. What are they going to do? I just feel like they could be a good resource. Well, why? If you don't know why you need someone, you don't need them. First deal, we did it all ourselves. With a lot of hats to wear, is it easier with more partners that that fit and align with our goals? Yes. Is it more fun to do it with friends, to do it with your team? Yes. Can you do it alone? Yes. All of the above. However, you want to make sure that if you're there, if you're working with a partner, that you each have a role. Typically, when friendships are made and friendships start a partnership, you know, you're both the same person. That's why you're friends. So you create this partnership, but you both do the same thing, and you, then you're poor at everything else, and you're not a great partnership. You still need the partnership you actually need. So maybe you're good at finding deals and market alignment, but you have no balance. You can't talk to uh, brokers, and you don't know how to raise capital. So where is it that you're short on? What is that value that you need to add? What are your goals? Do they align with your partner, short-term and long-term? If my partner wants to get into deals and get out of the deals in 12 months and I want to hold deals for 10 years, it's probably not the right partnership, right? It's probably not the right through line. What is that expectation? Do they understand what this is going to take? 
Do you understand that the commitment, the time that's going to come into place, that's going to be for me to be in this deal with them? Do you understand that the expectation? If you are going to go into a partnership, have the tough talks now. Don't wait. One of my biggest mistakes was ruining a friendship years, over a decade ago, over a partnership. And it was just, we were in a different life. Peel and I were opening restaurants and, and you know, breweries in New York City. Had a partnership. It came from a friendship. And we both had different, different ideas of where we'd go. Because we didn't have the tough talks. Have the tough talks. Especially if you're going to raise money from investors. The investors are giving money to you. You are preserving their capital. Have the tough talks with your partners to know who does what. Who controls what. Who's responsible for what? Who's going to put in what time? And make sure that you're both understanding this could be quick, could be long, but it will come if you do the work. I guarantee you today, if you take action, you commit, like we talked about before, you put in the work, you believe in your mind, and you talk to your mind, you tell yourself you can do it every day, it will come. I know it. I know it. Could it be three months? Could it be 18 months? Yes. I don't know. But it will come. It starts with taking action, committing, and knowing what you want and what your partners can help you get to. Now, we're going to heavy into syndication because that's the time I have allotted. But you can do a joint venture, doing that currently on one deal. Could do a syndication, doing that currently on two deals. Could be either way. We're talking syndication. Main drivers of syndication or all deals. Lead raising, uh, leads, and raising capital. That's syndication in, in a nutshell. If you can't find leads and you can't raise capital, you don't have a syndication bill, a, a business. And if you're only the lead guy, you need someone for money. If you're only the money girl, you need someone for leads. That's a syndication business right there in a nutshell. You can tell me all the fancy things. You want to get business cards. You want to start a website. You want to you know, talk to lawyers. You want to build up brokers. If you can't find leads and you can't raise money, you do not have a syndication business. That is going to be the drivers for your business. Roles into syndication, the general partners, that's the hats that we wear, and limited partners. Those are the investors who are solely passive participants in this deal. The passive participants are either accredited or sophisticated, non-accredited. Accredited, they make either $200,000 for the last two years or, or $300,000 as husband and wife. They have a, um, a, a net <clears throat> or they have a net worth of a million dollars, not including their home, or if it's a business or an LLC, they, they have $5 million in assets. So there's more requirements than that, but that's in a nutshell. Sophisticated investors, they have some semblance of the ability to understand investments, but they're not at that accredited level. The uh, credit investors, they can invest in both. We're talking about two offerings, a 506C opportunity, where it's only accredited investors, but you can openly market it. The sophisticated investors are only aligned to a 506B opportunity where it has to be a pre-existing relationships, but the accredited investors could also invest into that. Syndication partners, general partners. Chad talked a little bit on, it talked a lot on partnerships earlier. We're going to dive a little, a little into it right now. General partners, you're going to do lead generation and deal originating. You're going to do the underwriting. We just gave you an hour of underwriting, so you got that covered. Asset management, I'm going to give that to you next uh, day or two. You're going to have that covered. Risk capital, earnest money, and due diligence. Right now, we have a lot of earnest money out, right? And that's our money put to work. We have due diligence out on properties. That's our, our money putting out 
putting into our application fees for our bank, putting our earnest money down, our deposit for the deals, paying for our inspections, right? So we have that money out of pocket right now that will come back to us once we close that deal. But that's the risk capital that we have out if we can't close this deal. The equity. We've raised $2 million in the last two weeks, three weeks here. That's the equity, right, that we found that out. Some is our money we're putting into it. A lot of it is coming from investors who we've created relationships with and are investing with us into these deals so they can get preservation of capital, growth of capital, and return of capital. Lastly, balance sheet and sponsor. Now, this can be you. All these roles can be you. All these roles can be Jennifer, can be Lourdes, can be Aaron, can be Marisol, can be Nicholas, or you could have Miguel as lead. You could have Nicholas as underwriting. You could have Marisol at asset management. You have Cush at risk capital. You could have Donald at, at equity. Uh, you could have Vic at balance sheet. You can win too. Multifamily is a team sport. You can win like that too. Everybody can have a role. Everybody can have a hat. Everybody can have a seat at the table understanding where you fit into the guidance of the play. And your limited partners, they have a massive play. They're providing the money for the down payment. They're providing the capital expenditures, fees, and closing costs. Very important from that point, too. Who are going to be your resources for your capital partners? Building out your team. I'm going to go through this quick because Chad talked to this, but you're going to have your, that was, this is your internal team. Boom. External team. Property management. Your lenders and banks your attorney partners, both the closing attorney and your uh, securities attorney, your insurance partners. Put, put the investors here again because that's how important they are. Prospecting and lead generation, right? So are you using some other services or is it, or is it other parts like uh, brokers or whoever? Asset management, right? That may be you or you may hire an outside firm. Could be, could be both. External team members, legal, insurance, title, property manager, cost segregation, contractors. All different partners. We're going to have cost segregation and legal talking to you coming up. They're going to give you guidance on what you need to do, what you need to look for in both of these positions and how these can benefit your deals. General partner structure. Now, here's a structure. Does this have to be your structure? No. If you're wearing all these hats, then you're 100%. But say you're going to allocate and you're going to have different partnerships. going to be different parts and different responsibilities. So asset management may get a certain percentage of the promote. The risk capital might get a certain percentage. Deal orientation or origination, equity, balance sheet. I've seen asset management be as high as 60 because it was a heavy, heavy turn of the deal. I've seen uh, you know, equity be 20 or 35 based on how hairy the deal is. If the equity is uh, for someone to raise is, is safer, it's, it's, not, it's a pretty clean deal, it might be 20% that this allocates to the general partnership. If it's really uh, you know, a hard raise, uh, you know, typical, a, a more difficult deal for raise for it, it might be 35%. Same thing with, uh, with the balance sheet. If it's a really safe deal, I've seen this as low as 2%. Uh, if it's a balance sheet where the guy's going to sign the loan and it's a pretty hairy deal, it might be 20%. Here's a structure. Does it have to be yours? No. I've filtered this and I've seen this a lot of different ways. A lot of these deals, we're all of it, so it doesn't matter. But some of these deals, if your deal origination, equity, and balance sheet, maybe you have 55% of the general partnership. If your risk capital and asset management, you get 45 Okay. Now that's a partnership because you know what you do. You know what your role is. You know how you align in this deal, what's your responsibility, and what's your percentage breakout. So there's no discussion later, oh, I, I thought I did more. I thought I, I thought it was worth more. No, it's here. 
Day one. Now you can structure out what the deal is. Our money. We're going to have a great talk. My wife gives a killer conversation about how to raise money without asking for it. Here's where you can find your money. Friends and family, inner circle, network, coworkers. Remember, this is structured deal. Your banks could be your money. Non-bank lenders, hard money lenders, IRA. Don't forget about the retirement accounts. I learned this. The, the first deal we ever did, someone said, can I invest in my self, uh, self-directed IRA? I was in that position where I didn't know the answer, but I had built the mentors around me. Two seconds later, I, t- I sent a text. Hey, can someone self- direct to, uh, put money in through their self-directed IRA? Absolutely was a response back. There's trillions of dollars in retirement accounts. A lot of people, my aunt has had her money with the bank making 1% to 2% for the last 30 years she was at the bank. Some dead IRR. I said, Brennan, guess what I learned? You can actually use your money and, and invest in her syndication by putting in a self-direct firm. Two years in, I doubled her money. She's had 2% in the last 30 years. Double her money. She's like, what did you just do? Is this legal? I said, no, this is real estate. Because we put together and we put money into work where a lot of people just have their money in places because that's where they think they should have them. So allowing people to know the resources of where they can put their money, life insurance, personal savings, private equity, hedge funds, lines of credit, all applicable ways that you can have money partners as part of your deal structure. Here's how a deal structure can work. How can investors make money? We just talked about those partners. It could be a preferred return and equity in the deal. In our deals, we typically have a preferred return. And anybody who does not understand that term, it is not a guarantee. But what this is, is that it is a preference on the capital return coming out of there. So if there's cash flow coming out of this deal, they're going to get the first share of that cash flow coming out of the deal before there's a split to us as the general partners, before there's a split, uh, any money coming out to us. Typically, it can be anywhere 7 to 10. It's actually, you know, we've been at 6 to about 7 right now based on the times, how aggressive and how much money there is out there. So we offer a 6% preferred return, and on the back end, they get equity upside. So if we hit that preferred return rate, past that, there's a split of the equity. So we, if that split might be 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, usually tiered in the limited partner fashion. Same thing happens with the profits from the deal. They also have a split in the equity from that profit from a deal. Investor structure. Here's a typical structure. Uh, securities attorney will get into this tomorrow. General partners on the left, that's us. Passive investors on the right. We serve as the asset management, we all come together through an LLC. That's a single asset entity for the deal we're purchasing right now. We buy the multifamily real estate and we couple that with debt. In this part, we did non-recourse project-specific debt that goes for this opportunity. General partners and the investors, we come together to form an LLC. Us as general partners serve as the Class B members. The Class A members are our investors. We're all part of one LLC that's put together just for this building. And we now go into and purchase as only a single asset, this multifamily property, and we pair that on with debt. How do we do this deal structure? We put together these, I don't put together, but our security attorney puts together a private placement memorandum explaining the deal, subscription documents that the investor signs into to enable them to be participants into this deal an operating agreement outlaying what the deal is about and entities and organization, us forming this new entity, this new LLC that makes up the new entity that's going to be a single asset entity for this deal and this deal only. 
Understanding how this breaks out allows you to structure your deal. Show of hands, what costs more, debt or equity? Equity costs more right now. Could go the other way, but right now equity costs more. So if your debt is 60%, 70 50% of the deal, your equity is going to cost more over time. So the more money you have to raise, that's going to cost you more into the future. So understanding what it is about your deal that can allow you to really have the best way to win, it's partnering usually majority debt. We'd like to be 70 to 75% debt, partner with 25% to 30% equity on that part that gives us our best returns. Debt financing can be utilized in a syndication. Equity will be raised, as we said, for capital expenditure, payment, and others. Debt is cheaper than equity. The percentage of allocated for equity times return plus the percentage of debt times the return of capital. That gets you to your cost of capital. What it is is the average it costs you on your debt based on the percentage of the deal, the average it costs you for your equity based on the percentage of the deal is your overall cost of all the funds coming into that deal. So we covered a lot here. Probably have your brains ready to explode. That's good. Tomorrow we're going to put it to use. Here's the deal summary. Find the deals. You have your wholesalers, your marketing team, your underwriter, commercial real estate uh, brokers. Come into meetups like this. People who brought our first deal from, uh, from a meetup. Didn't even have to market that deal. I had five offers come well ahead where I thought I could sell it. Purchasing deals. You need attorneys, brokers, bankers, insurance agents, private money partners, titles, managing deals, accountants, bookkeepers, local, your boots in the ground. It says feet in the street. I guess that works too. General contractors, your construction manager, property management company, and asset management. This is your structure in the deal summary. This is how you can win. Now, it sounds like a lot. When you start breaking this into actual steps and understanding that it takes you into that first step to understand where you're going to be your role, where are you going to be the player in this opportunity that you're going to go out there and have traction and you're going to win in multifamily real estate. Wasn't that amazing? I mean, Jason just gives it all. He goes deep into underwriting. And if you want more information just like that, if you need that level up, if you need that family, if you need that team, if you want that kind of masterminding on a daily basis, then you need to join us at Seven Figure Multifamily. Please go to sevenfiguremultifamily.com. Again, that website is sevenfiguremultifamily.com. And if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. Have an amazing day and aloha.